Please be seated. <clears throat> I'm in a book club, as I know many of you are. And my book club recently read and talked about a book called The Double Life of Lillianne. It's by a woman called Lily Tuck. And one member of our group knew Miss Tuck, knows Miss Tuck personally, and confirmed that this book blurs the lines between fiction and autobiography. Some thought the book was wonderful. I thought it might be interesting to her children or grandchildren as anecdote and history. But in the end, I found it unsatisfactory as there was very little about how Lillianne responded to the events of her life. At one point, for example, she's molested uh, by an uncle. And while she reports the incident, we learn nothing really as to whether or how that abuse affected her. Multiply that by as many stories as are in the book, and we have a long version of, the answer, of an answer to the question, who are your people? We have her social location, but not much else. I was not left with a sense that I knew the character in any meaningful way. And to the degree that autobiography is confessional, this was pretty thin gruel. I've sometimes encouraged couples entering into a second or subsequent marriage, and especially former Roman Catholics, to consider using our right of reconciliation or confession before their wedding. And I remember one couple, and this is a pattern gets played out in one way or another fairly often, where the man really sort of just outlined a list of things he'd done wrong, rules he'd broken. And it was just the facts of the thing, and that was his confession, and that's, that's fine. But the woman took those as clues to look for broken relationship. That's why sometimes I think we call the law like a mirror. You look in the mirror, it shows you something you need to take a look at. But what we're looking at is not just, oh my goodness, I've broken a rule, but more, where have I broken relationship? Where have I broken relationship with God? Or where have I broken relationship with others? Or where have I broken relationship even with myself? At any rate, relationship is something more than formal structures or social location, or even a recital of common history. We're in the middle of a week that happens every year. You might not be aware of it, but it's called the Annual Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And our reading from 1 Corinthians makes clear that relationship, right and real relationship, is not optional for Christians. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. I don't really bemoan the reality of multiple Christian denominations, even if I grieve the disputes that gave rise to this reality. I think of denominations more as different ways of being faithful, actually living the faith, rather as different spiritual traditions give rise to different monastic orders and communities. But at the same time, I abhor anything that smacks of trying to churn, turn the church of God into a purity sect or separation for the purpose of being righteous over against all those other unrighteous people because we know the truth. Church structures can be a vehicle for inviting relationship, but it's the relationship that's the point and not the structures. And then there's another thing, and that is but sometimes the unity can be false too. Sometimes if the price of my unity with you is our mutual creation of a scapegoat, of an enemy, then we are engaging in the same mechanism of violence 
that Jesus revealed in his life and that fundamentally and ultimately brought about his death. Whatever else was going on around Jerusalem in Jesus' day, we know that the Jewish authorities and the Roman occupiers and even one or two of Jesus' closest friends found common cause with with putting this popular preacher who was causing a kind of disturbance in the force with putting this preacher to death on a cross. And at least part of what we mean by salvation is being freed from that cycle of violence that Jesus reveals to us in his life and in his death. Some of you might recall that 10 years ago I spent, I had a sabbatical leave and I spent a portion of it teaching at what was then the Kusulu Bible College and is now uh, the Lake Tanganyika Theological College. Good for them, they got a promotion. And we pray for them uh, regularly here. And I began and ended that stay in Dar es Salaam in the east of the country and I went to the cathedral and it turns out that that part of the country, the eastern part of Tanzania, the missionaries that brought Christianity to them were of the Anglo-Catholic variety within Anglicanism. And, that, and they were obviously taught how to worship in that style using forms of worship and debates that are at least 100 years old. I mean, there was more smoke in there than in your basic English pub. There was, you know, they were holding on to each other's lace cotters and marching around. I mean, I thought I'd been transported to pre-Vatican II Rome for a moment. And then you get to the east, uh, to, to the west, rather, where we are in relationship. And there in the bishop's chapel in, in uh, Kasulu is this tiny little wooden table, this, this altar. And the bishop presided at the communion from the north end, the thin end of the altar, which was an old evangelical debate about whether priests were intermediaries and all that sort of business. Now, I don't know if they knew why they were doing it, but they were engaging in worship forms that underlie debates that were of massive consequence and division, even within our own communion, a hundred years ago. So suddenly, communication improves, and they become aware of each other, and they become aware that they're doing things very differently, and they may even actually slightly believe different things about important matters. And so that creates anxiety. And my read was that that anxiety, by the time I was there in 2005, two years after we consecrated Gene Robinson as a, as a uh, gay Christian, as a bishop, the, it was very useful for them to raise questions about America. Every parish I visited, I was asked about the American church, and I was asked about this mythical thing called globalization, by which I think they meant materialism. But basically, the West was the problem, and they were feeling really good being together over against the West. See how it works? It works the same way in our personal relationships. It's, how, it's, what, it's, what, it's what's happening when people in a partnership or a marriage are feeling anxious with each other, and it's really easy to focus on the children. Just talk about the children, and the children become the bearers of the anxiety, and all sorts of symptoms will happen. It's, it's a common, fundamental way in which we individually and societally and structurally deal with anxiety, and it's the same mechanism that put Jesus to death, and it's the same mechanism that is revealed so we can choose not to keep living it over and over and over again. See, I know that it is tempting to respond to being ostracized or vilified or otherwise marginalized by saying, in effect, blast you, or something to that effect, but the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. There is no ultimate purity to be had in a compromised world. But as people 
called to bear witness to the peace that passes understanding, the real presence that God makes incarnate in the world, marked by justice, as those people we better look again to Jesus before we start separating ourselves. In the synagogue in Nazareth, he preached a nice sermon. And if we read a little further in Luke chapter 4, we find that the people liked it. They liked him. And they sort of began to claim him as one of their own, as if it was to redounding to their glory. He's one of us. And he says, not so fast. A prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And he could do very few works of magnificence there. And he said to the people, you know, in the old days even, it wasn't the, it wasn't the Israelites who got healed. Naaman had to go and the Syrian got healed. And you shouldn't just assume that you're okay with God, etc. And they get furious with him, and they seek to try and throw him off the edge of a cliff, but he evades them and moves on. Think about the rest of his ministry. He stayed connected whenever he could. He kept inviting others into right relationship with God and each other. He kept inviting people to remember their belovedness. He kept undermining all of those places where there were marginalized people and poor people and sick people and lepers and what have you, publicans, sinners. He kept walking with integrity, even though that integrity was in the end going to cost him his life. He knew that not everyone agreed with him. He knew that not everyone wished him well, but he walked with integrity, saying what he had to say, doing what he had to do, day in, day out, attempting to stay connected to the people, and in the end deciding that the worst thing in life was not his death. The worst thing in life would have been breaking faith with the love that made him for love. It's not a bad model as we pray for unity among Christians. It seems a pretty good goal for us to stay connected, even with those who disagree with us, while we be clear about who we are and what we're about, always inviting relationship but walking with integrity and sharing the truth as it has been revealed in and to us. Maybe formal structures and churches and rules and regs make possible relationships of real consequence, but those things are not the point, and tinkering with them is not really the point. Just like Lily Tuck and Lily Ann, real and right relationship is more about, more than something about fixing structures. Christian unity is and always has been about a kind of relationship among Christians, and the structures are fine as long as the gospel is served and not undermined by our actions. So in our customary time of silence in response to the gospel, I invite you to recommit to the costly work of being in community across the world and down the ages who have never been of one mind but for the universal confession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is for us the way. So I came across a prayer among the materials for Christian unity that I rather liked. I invite you to pray with me now. Lord Jesus, you have always loved us from the beginning. You've shown the depth of your love in dying for us on the cross, thereby sharing our suffering and our wounds. As we pray for unity among Christians, we lay all the obstacles that separate us from your love at the foot of your cross. Roll back the stones that imprison us. Awaken us to your resurrection morning. And there, 
may we meet the brothers and sisters from whom even now we are separated. Amen. In silence, let us respond to the gospel.